Now you know, the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians has 16 long chapters in it. And I only had eight slots to talk. So you knew in advance that I wasn't going to be able to go all the way through this book. But tonight, I would like for us to read through together the 15th chapter of the book. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I'll make some observations on it. And at least tell you what baptism for the dead is. You know, there's these certain things in 1 Corinthians that are weird. And uh, I know you all are on pins and needles to know what baptism for the dead is. And I'll tell you. I'll I'll tell you tonight what the answer to that is. Unless I have a heart attack. Okay? Uh, Remember that I I think that uh, we have uncovered that one of Paul's major themes in this book It's not justification by faith. It's not the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile. It is an absolute new beginning, an absolute new creation in the world. That's what he's dealing with here. And he refers to the cross as the place where that new creation starts. In darkness, uh, in death, out of which everything starts again. And he refers to himself as a messenger of this uh, gospel, this good news that starts in a new creation as a very weak thing coming out of darkness uh, and himself as a person who is weak and sickly and terrified as he came in their midst. Not somebody with a lot of strength and power, but that the strengths and powers of the old age, which at the time are very impressive, very impressive Greek rhetoric, very impressive Roman martial power, that those things are actually weak compared to the strength of the cross and of the new creation that is coming up out of it. And then he says, you know, once we get this new beginning, thank you, we we continue on and build on it, that some people who are more mature, and all of us should become mature, uh, out of this new beginning we begin, begin to become more mature, and pastors are supposed to come alongside of God and build this new creation, uh, and we've looked at that. So that, I think, it continues to be his theme in this book. And whereas in the beginning of the book he talks about the cross of Christ, here at the end he talks about the resurrection. It's as if he's balanced these things. But the resurrection is, again, the idea of a brand new creation. And I've argued with you before that the problems in the Corinthian church are not caused by pagans or brand new pagan converts in their midst. There may have been some brand new pagan converts in their midst. In fact, there's a hint uh, here and there that there were. But the problems in the church are coming about because the large majority of the church who had lived under the law for a, new, a long time have come into this new situation and they're not quite sure what to do. If there's a new age, then what about uh, a man who uh, marries his father's wife? It was obviously not allowed in the old creation, But what about the new creation? They're not sure what to do. They're not sure what to do about women uh, speaking in church. They're not sure what to do about marriage and giving in marriage if the world is just about to come to an end and there's going to be a great tribulation all over the Roman Empire. Then should we marry or should we hold off and wait till that's over with? These are all questions and difficulties that arise from people who have lived under the law and lived in the old creation and are now free. Uh, they can drink wine with God for the first time, so some of them drink too much. 
There are questions about whether they ought to buy meat, sacrifice to idols in the marketplace. Paul says, hey, who cares where it was sacrificed from or where it came from? If it tastes good, buy it. Um, Same question comes up when people say, well, you know, should I... uh, should I make use of uh, government-sponsored food stamps if I've got a lot of poor people in my church or public libraries funded with public money that's taken by taxes? Meat sacrifice to idols is the answer to that. You know, there's no reason not to. It's there. We would like to get rid of all these idol shrines, but as long as they're there, you can buy the meat from them as long as you don't participate in their orgies. Uh, We would like to change our government and get the taxes down and probably have libraries be pay-as-you-go situations and the like, just like video stores. But until that happens, might as well live now and work to change. So there's, there's practical relevance in the book. These questions have come about because things are new and we don't know quite what to do, and so there's a lot of practical settling of those questions. But tonight I'd like for us to read through together 1 Corinthians 15 and look at what he says about the resurrection. And he begins by saying, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel that I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you were saved, if you hold fast the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now I remind you that at the beginning of the epistle, he tells them that they're all guaranteed to go to heaven. He says that they've been set apart, they're saints, uh, uh, that uh, God is going to hold on to them. They're not lacking any gift. Uh, They're going to be confirmed to the end that God is faithful. Remember? But that's not automatic, and we discussed that. That's covenant language. If you don't stay in union with Christ, if you run away from God, then you don't get those benefits. And so here he is. Maybe Maybe some of you believed in vain. Maybe some of you will fall away. He doesn't want that to happen. He encourages them not to. The good news is they're in the kingdom. All you have to do is stay there. You know, how hard is that? In a way, it's not hard. It can be hard at times. But that's not his theme. We go to Peter's epistle to discover maybe the hardship of staying in the kingdom sometimes when you're persecuted. So he says in verse 3, I delivered to you among the first things what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now, let me stop right there. I've been saying right along that when you see the word Christ, Messiah, anointed one, by itself, we need to think of Jesus with the body, the body of Christ. And that is usually true, and I think it's largely true through this chapter here. But here it's obviously Jesus himself as an individual who dies for our sins, because we don't. Okay, we don't die for our own sins, and we don't really die for other people's sins in the sense that's spoken of here. So here's a case where the Messiah, uh, he just uses that phrase, the Messiah, the Messianic work of Jesus, uh, in particular Christ as Messiah, was to die in the place of our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, as the Scriptures foretold. You know, we say in the Nicene Creed, he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's a mistranslation of the Creed. It it doesn't mean he rose on the third day as the Scriptures tell us. It means he rose again on the third day as prophesied in the Scriptures. 
in fulfillment of the Scriptures, in accordance with the Scriptures. So really, uh, if you ever teach through the Nicene Creed, it's something that you need to explain to people because what they're saying, what the fathers are saying in the Nicene Creed is that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of the Bible uh, and the Scriptures laid them out. Not just that the Scriptures happened to tell us that Jesus rose on the third day. Um, well, that's off the subject, isn't it? Okay, but that's kind of the meaning here, too. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. See, that's the phrase that's quoted in the Creed. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, means rock. Peter, or Jonah, means rock Johnson. Okay, right. And James and John were the sons of thunder. Rock Johnson and the Thunder Boys. It's Jesus' group. <clears throat> he appeared to Rocky and then to the Twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, though some have fallen asleep. And he appeared to James, that is, the brother of Jesus, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, to me, as it were to one born out of uh, time, out of the original time. He appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now, here's this starting again from small things theme. Once again, Paul is saying, the gospel is, it starts small, it starts in darkness, it starts on the cross. It starts with a weak guy like me who is sick and scared and frightened. And here, the least of the apostles, I'm the one who do these things. It keeps emphasizing the newness of things and how things start small and things start in unexpected ways. Verse 10, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Now, just to comment on this. His point is, Jesus Christ came back out of the grave in a physical, resurrected body, and lots of people saw it. This is an historical event. It's not a psychological event. It's not what liberal theologians say it is. The disciples on the day of Pentecost said, the Spirit came down and they said, Oh, wow, he's still alive. Let's let off some balloons. That's kind of the liberal theology way. His body is really rotting in the grave, but cool, he's still alive. No, that's not it at all. Uh, John Brown's body's moldering in the grave where it belongs, but not in Jesus. Jesus comes back. Jesus, this is an historical event. You can go and talk to these people, as he's saying. If any of you have any questions about it, you can talk to people. Well, now we ask ourselves, and the rest of this chapter raises a question, were there people in the Corinthian church or hanging around the Corinthian church who denied the resurrection? Obviously, there were. There were people who were saying there's no physical resurrection. Maybe there's an immortal soul that floats out there, you know, in the upper realm forever and ever after you've passed on to the next realm or something. But no physical bodily resurrection. There are such people, and who are they? 
Well, obviously they're around the Corinthian church, but let me remind you that this links up with the book of Acts. The way Luke does it in Acts, Paul goes to Athens, and while he's in Athens, he talks about the physical resurrection, and everybody sneers at him. They don't believe in a physical resurrection. They believe in a philosophical idea of the immortality of the soul. And you die, and then you float around in the sh- as, a, as a shade forever and ever. They don't want to hear about a physical resurrection. And he goes straight from Athens to Corinth and sets up this Corinthian church. So the way, the way Luke has written it in here, those who scoff at the resurrection are right in the same context with the formation of the Corinthian church. So who are these people? Well, they're people in Corinth, but they're kind of like these Athenians. Physical resurrection, that does, they don't buy it. So Paul says, hey, this is a historical fact. It's an historical fact. And if you don't believe me, there's lots of people you can talk to. But then he moves on in verses 12 to 19 in the second paragraph here. He says, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there's no resurrection of the dead? Now, see, I think he begins to use the word Christ by itself here in order to make his point that just as Jesus is physically raised from the dead, so all of us who were in union with him, who were part of the body of Christ, will be also. So his choice of rhetorical language here is significant. What we preach is that Jesus Christ himself came back from the dead and that all of us are going to come back from the dead as well. That's the message. If Christ has preached that he was raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Some among you. Some members of the church or people at least around the edges of their community. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is a waste of time and your faith is also vain. It's also empty. It's also a waste of time. Well, so what, Paul? I mean, your preaching is a waste of time. If you're going to preach the resurrection, cause there ain't no resurrection. And so you're wasting your time. So who cares? But he has some other arguments in his, some other arrows in his quiver as well. He says in verse 15, moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses because we witnessed concerning uh, God that he raised the Messiah. He raised Christ whom, according to you guys, he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. So look, he says to the Corinthians, you sure you want to go down this road? Because if you say there's no resurrection of the body, then, then what I said to you was worthless. And on top of that, that makes me a liar. I'm a false witness, and so are all the other apostles. In fact, this whole shebang is based on a lie, he says. Why bother to be in the church? Go back to the synagogue. If there's no resurrection, then the whole thing is a lie. Because if you have a principle, dead people aren't raised to life again, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. And then here's the punchline. You are still in your sins. Now, wait a minute. It was Jesus' death on the cross that paid for our sins. So Jesus paid for our sins on the cross, 
And whether he's resurrected or not doesn't make any difference, does it? Or does it? This is what we need to think about for a minute. Paul argues in Romans that Jesus was raised, that his resurrection was his justification. The word justification doesn't mean only forgiveness of sins. It means vindication. Um, the accusation is that Jesus was a bad man. The accusation was that Jesus deserved to die. That's what the false witnesses came up and said. That's what the Jews said to Pilate. Jesus is a bad man. Jesus deserves to die. He died under false charges. The resurrection is his vindication. If there is no vindication then he was a bad man who deserved to die. That's Paul's argument. And if he was a bad man who deserved to die, then he didn't die for our sins. Either Jesus was a perfect man and God who died for our sins and God vindicated him by raising him from the dead and said, this man was innocent, so I'm going to bring him back to life again because he never should have died in the first place. Or if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then that means he was a sinful man who deserved to die, and that's why God didn't bring him back from the dead. That's his argument. So these things are tied together, the cross and the resurrection. If there's no resurrection, then there's no vindication of Jesus. He didn't really die for our sins. He wasn't innocent. The reason the grave couldn't hold him, in part, is because he was innocent. So he couldn't be held there. All right? So he's vindicated. He's justified. He's declared righteous by his resurrection. And he says, if Christ has not been raised, you're still in your sins. Because then he didn't die for you. He wasn't the blameless Lamb of God. The resurrection, which is the proof that he was blameless, never happened. We don't want to go down that way, he says. In verse 8, 18, he says... Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Your mama and your daddy and all your other friends who have died in Christ, they're never going to be resurrected. Who knows what's going to happen to them? Notice that death is called falling asleep here. I've been saying to you right along, Adam and, when Adam goes into deep sleep, that's like death. And that's the same kind of language here, you know. Death, as we'll see later on, the bad part of death is because of sin. If sin is taken care of, then death is just falling asleep. He says in verse 19, if we have only hoped in Christ in this life, you know, well, believing in Jesus, uh, being a Christian, that'll help you out in this life. He says, if you think that, you, we are of all men most to be pitied. That's pretty stupid. If you want to get, get ahead in this life, might as well steal and lie and get involved with oppressive, you know, work your way up high in the government and oppress other people, uh, you know, have high tariffs to keep the poor out and all the rest of it because uh, that's how you get, get, a, get ahead in this life. And you think if you think there's any big cash value in being a Christian in this life, you're crazy. Yes, being a Christian will help you in this life, but... It's not going to help you as much as being a pagan, at least in a pagan society. You can get ahead a lot further 
being a good old pagan. So if, even if being a Christian, you say, well, there's no resurrection, but it, at least in this life it's better to be a Christian. He says, that's just pathetic. <laughs> you know, if there's no resurrection, there's no point in being a Christian in this life. But he says, that's just not true. In verses 20 and following. This, is, this is, just isn't true. I've already shown you Christ came back. You can talk to these witnesses. He was raised from the dead. Jesus is alive in a physical body. And this whole business about he didn't come to life again and we don't believe in the resurrection is just false. It's just false. And so we need to just set that aside and reflect on what it does mean that he was resurrected and all the great things that are connected with that. And that starts in verse 20. And he says, But now it's a fact that Christ has been raised from the dead, and he is the first fruits of those who are asleep. That is, those who are dead, okay, who are asleep. He's the first fruits. Now, that refers to the ritual in Leviticus 23. The ritual calendar looked like this. You have the day of Passover, and then after the day of Passover, you have seven days of unleavened bread, where you don't eat any fluffy bread, only flat bread that has no sourdough in it. Leaven means sourdough starter. It doesn't mean yeast. Packet yeast is not leaven. You use packet yeast, you can make a big fluffy loaf of bread, and that's not leavened bread. Understand that. Leaven doesn't mean yeast, and if your Bible translates it that way, it's not right. Leaven means sourdough starter that is used to make bread, and you have the, the bread is continuous day after day. Each Okay, I have to explain this for the men. Okay. Back in the old days, you wanted to have a nice fluffy piece of bread. You have leaven in the bread that makes it rise and become fluffy. Okay. Now, every time you make a loaf of bread and you put it in a warm place and it rises up and becomes a fluffy loaf and then you pound it down... And then it rises up again, and you're just going to stick it in the oven and bake it and have it become a nice puffy loaf of bread like we've had. You take a little bit of it out, and you put it in a covered container, and you keep it. That's called starter. It's called starter, because it starts the next one. And next day when you make a loaf of bread, you take some flour, some water, a little salt, oil, Mix it together, and you take that starter, and you put it in there, and you mix it all up, and you let it sit, and it rises. And you pound it down, and then it rises. But before you put it in the oven, you take out a little piece, and you put it in here to keep it for the next day. And you can do that day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And you just, you really got the same continuous sourdough chemical Generation after generation, there are people who have who make sourdough bread using starter that their grandmother started, and it's just continuous. Now, in Israel, they were told once a year you stop that. You get rid of all the sourdough starter. And so when you have bread and you mix it up, you don't have any starter to put into it, and it doesn't rise up and become fluffy. It just stays there and gets flat. So you have pita bread flat bread for a week. 
at the end of that week, then you can start over again with new leaven in a new year. Okay? So you cut down certain plants and put them in water, and the chemicals come out of the water, and then you mix flour into that, and it rises a little bit. And you take some out, and you make your loaf, and then the next time you do it, it'll probably rise just fine, and you're, you're going again. You're good for another year until the end of the year when you cut that off and go for a week without it and start up again. That's what it means. Leavened bread is sourdough bread. Okay, wonder bread is not leaven. It's yeasted, okay, but it's not leaven. Well, during this week of unleavened bread, after Passover, sometime during that week, you're going to have a Sabbath day. The day after that Sabbath day, which is the first day of the next week, inside of the week of unleavened bread, Okay, one of those seven days is going to be a Sabbath. Maybe the next day, maybe toward the end of the week. But one of those days will be a Sabbath. The next day, the eighth day, is a day of first fruits. On that day, the priest goes before God with a sheaf of wheat, and he waves it before God and gives it to him. That is the day of first fruits. Now, when did Jesus die? Right at Passover. He was in the grave on the Sabbath day, and he rose on the day of first sheaf, or the first fruits day. So that's what he means here. The very first uh, resurrection, the, the pledge of universal resurrection, is that Jesus comes back from the dead on the day of first fruits. And he says, look, the whole system of Israel is that what's true of the first fruits is true of the whole harvest. You start with that first sheaf on the day of Pentecost, the harvest has grown to the fact that you have two loaves, two leavened loaves. Leaven is not a symbol of evil, but of growth. And you wave those leavened loaves before the Lord. And then you come on down to the end of the year, and you have the great feast of ingathering where everything is gathered together, and you have bread and wine. And then you start a new year. Well, all of this is pointing forward. And he says, without going into a lot of detail and trying to nail down everything, one thing's clear, Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the first fruits of those who were asleep. It's a proof that everybody else who is in the kingdom is going to be raised. And now he gets into the, the details. Verse 21. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Who is the man who brought death? Adam. Well, I thought Eve committed the first sin. I thought it was the evil woman who led man into sin. Well, you know the story. Adam was just out naming more animals, and he came back, and Eve had eaten the fruit. And he said, oh, Eve, <laughs> how could you have done that? Well, because he loved her so much, he ate some too and joined her in her sin. You ever heard that? Well, that's an example of really bad theology. No, no. Eve, Adam stood there the whole time, you know, and when she was thinking about taking a bite and she looked to him for advice, he was... Because <whistles> he wanted her to eat it. He was... 
provoking her to eat it. That's the fact. So it's Adam's sin that's responsible for bringing death. Since by a man came death, by a man also came resurrection from the dead. Just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ, in the Messiah, all shall be made alive. Or you can translate that, all, all, all certainly are made alive. Okay? And don't get hung up on the alls here. It's all who are in view. That's all. <laughs> don't press Paul's language into our theological box. We had to deal with the Arminians 400 years ago, and so we came up with some formulas to deal with them, and that's great. But those formulas are to deal with that question. Paul's using language dealing with his matter, not with that question. So, all die in Adam, all in Christ are, certainly, or shall be made alive, depending on how you want to translate it. Each in its own order, okay? In the order of honor. This is not the word that means an order in time, but it's a word that means an, or, an order of honor. Christ, the Messiah, the first fruits. He is the most honorable. After that, those who are who belong to him at his coming, they receive the resurrection. And then comes the end, when he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, after he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. I know I'm funny, but... Okay. There comes a time when Jesus has done all that he intends to do, abolishing all rule, all authority, and power. And he's got the kingdom the way he wants it, and he delivers it to God, his Father. It tells us that right now Jesus has got a project. The Father has put Jesus in charge of the world and says, Son, you run this world. You change this world. You disciple the nations. You can send the Spirit to help you disciple the nations. And Jesus is getting it all together, and then he's going to give it to God the Father. How far that's going to go and how successful he's going to be? Well, he's going to be successful. The question is, what does he intend to do? I am of those opinion who says he intends to disciple all the nations, and so that's what's going to happen. But I don't want to get into that particular question here. Whatever he intends to do, he's going to accomplish. And verse 25 says he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Now, death is not an enemy. Some person is an enemy. Okay? So really, this means, we could paraphrase this, the last enemy that will be abolished and dealt with is Mr. Death or the devil. Okay? The person who deals death, the person who is the lord of, of wicked death, is the last person who's going to be abolished. And there won't be any more death. Verse 27 says, He has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection... It's evident that he has accepted who put all things in subjection to him. That is, the Father is not subjected to the Son. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. 
Okay, that gets confusing to hear it. But, okay, Jesus is under the Father. You know, Jesus has been given the right to rule the world. And he says two things, and in theology we have this kind of awkward phrase, already but not yet, to describe this. He says he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And he says, when at last all things are put under his feet, subjected to him, then the Son will give it all to the Father, and the Son will subject himself to the Father and honor the Father by bowing to him. That's what this means. But then he says in verse 27, he has put all things in subjection to him already. So which is it? All things are already in subjection to him? Or all things are being gradually put in subjection to him and finally totally will be? Well, the answer is yes. Both. In principle, all things are under him. The outworking of it is going to go on in history until it's finished. And everything is in subjection to him. And he has it all in his hands in the full sense and gives it to the Father. That's what's going on now. That's what evangelism is now. That's what missionary work is now. Proclaiming to people that Jesus is king and they don't have to live the old horrible way anymore, all their lifetime subject to fear. They can come into the kingdom. They can meet the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They can live a new life. Uh, that's what we can tell people, that their sense of guilt and fear can be removed because Jesus has died. Now he starts dealing with people who are arguing against him, and in this case, it's Jews. Jews are fighting with Paul, and that's true everywhere he goes. And so it's true here as well. Verse 29, he says, Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? And why are we in danger every hour? Well, the they and those are not people in the church. Sorry, Mormons, but they're not. The Christians aren't doing the baptism for the dead. Nor, sorry, liberal theologians, there are no Christians out there at the fringes of the Corinthian church who are baptizing for the dead. They're not baptizing uh, corpses. They're not baptizing themselves for their grandparents or their great-grandparents. That's not what this is about at all, okay? This is they. They are the people who are putting Paul in danger every hour. That's why these verses are next to each other. They are Jews, and Jews baptize for the dead, don't they? What chapter of the Bible is that in? Silence is deafening. It's in Numbers 19. When you contract death from a dead body, you have to be baptized to be made alive again. If you, the most defiling agent is a human corpse, not an animal carcass, but a human corpse. If you come in contact, physical contact with an animal carcass, you're unclean. Unclean means symbolically dead. You are symbolically dead until the sun goes down and the evening sacrifice takes it off and you have to baptize yourself and be clean. But if you touch or are in the same room with a human corpse, you're unclean, symbolically dead, for seven days. You're dead. 
and you have to be baptized with the water that has the red cow ashes in it on the third day and then again on the seventh day. You are baptized because of the dead. And what does baptism mean? It means resurrection. And he's saying, look, I don't have time to read the whole book of Leviticus to you, but go back and look at it. Unclean means symbolically dead. All the things that make you unclean have to do with death. Every time a baby is born, dead in trespasses and sins, it makes the mother symbolically dead. Any connection between the most central parts of the male and female body in marriage leaves you dead for until nightfall because the one fleshness of human life is a place of death. It should be a place of life, but it's a place of symbolic death because the one fleshness of human life is a place of death. It should be a place of life, but it's a place of symbolic death. White spots on your arm where the skin seems to open up and the little forest and jungle of hair that's all over it starts to turn yellow and the little elephants and things that keep your skin clean start to die and your flesh shows through. That's death. You have that, you're symbolically dead. Get near an animal carcass, eat dead animal food that dies by itself, get near a human corpse, death gets on you. As Paul says in Romans, death spreads to all men. And we can think about that genealogically, but it's also true on the law. If I touch you, you touch somebody else, that condition spreads around depending on how strong the condition of ceremonial death is. And every one of those ceremonial deaths is taken away by sprinkling with water, which means that sprinkling with water is resurrection. Okay? Simple, basic, elementary stuff. You're symbolically dead. Put water on you. You're not dead anymore. If you're not dead anymore, what are you? Resurrected. Okay? So he says, hey, dummies, you know, you Jews, you're always baptizing each other whenever somebody dies. Well, whenever somebody dies, you know, somebody's got to prepare the body for burial and everybody comes in the room to say their last goodbyes. All those people are unclean. They're dead for a week. They have to be resurrected twice on the third day and then resurrected again on the seventh day. So he says, what's wrong with you Jews? You Jews say Jesus couldn't be raised again. Right at the heart of your religion, stuff you do all the time is resurrection. So why do you baptize for the dead for the sake of death? If the dead aren't raised, then why do you baptize for their influence? What does this all mean? The whole system proves that physical bodily resurrection was taught all along in the symbolic system in Leviticus and Numbers. And why are we in danger every hour? You know, Why are people threatening us if they understood their own Jewish law, they would not do so? He says in verse 31, I protest, brethren, by the boasting in you that I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, he piles up the words there. He says, I die every day. Well, if he dies every day, then he's got to have some kind of resurrection every day. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead aren't raised, then let us eat, drink, 
eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's from Isaiah 22:13. That's what the wicked in Israel were saying while the armies were at their gates. Okay, he says this. You know, why would I take all these physical risks for the gospel if I didn't believe in a physical resurrection? Just take a look at me, he says, you know. I go out here, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. Now, I think that means, I don't think that means that they threw him to the animals. <laughs> I think he means that the, uh, the mob that attacked him in Ephesus. He's talking about human beings there. But whoever he's talking about, I mean, Paul was stoned to death at one occasion. They dragged him out of the city and they stoned him. Then it says he got up and walked away. Look, you don't get up and walk away after a bunch of expert Jews stone you to death. He was dead. Okay, he was as dead as Stephen. And then he got up and walked away, just popped right up. Now he's saying, look, you know, I can't expect that to happen every time. <laughs> In fact, the matter is, I'm taking all these physical risks. I could be killed. Why would I do that if I expected death to be the end? That's stupid, he says. If dead people aren't raised, then heck, I'll just go back and watch TV, drink beers, and watch the game. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. He says, don't be deceived, you Corinthians. Bad communications corrupt good morals. Now, your Bible may say bad company corrupts good morals. Uh, more likely, it means bad communications corrupt good morals. Bad teaching. Okay? Bad teaching. Bad teaching says there's no resurrection from the dead. This life is it. So you might as well do whatever feels good. False teaching leads to bad living. Righteous teaching, which says, you know, at the end, you're going to be raised, you're going to stand before Christ, affects how you live. Become sober-minded as you ought. Stop sinning. For some of these people have no knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. You shouldn't even be listening to these people, he says. But now someone will say, okay, Paul, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they do they get? Then he apparently loses his temper with them. He says, you fool. Fool says in his heart, I acknowledge no God. No God over me. Then it says, they are corrupt. You know, the psalm says that. The fool singular says in his heart, no God over me. And then it says, they are corrupt. So the fool who does not acknowledge God is really Adam in the beginning. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.